Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Mike the Gardener podcast, sponsored by those lovely people at Natural Grower, who supply plant-based products for both organic and chemical-free gardening and your houseplants. In today's episode, I chat with garden writing legend, and I mean legend, Anna Pavord. I was totally thrilled when Anna agreed to chat with me. Anna is the author of a number of best-selling gardening books, and I bet if you look along your gardening bookshelf, you'll find at least one or two of Anna's books amongst your collection. In 1999, Bloomsbury published undoubtedly her most well-known book to date, The Tulip. It's a Bible, a gardening Bible. I talked to Anna about the tulip, her career, her writing, her West Dorset garden, and lots, lots more. I love gardening. I was intrigued by it. It had obviously huge, um, calming properties when you're at the stage of your life bringing up small children. It's a totally delightful conversation. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh, it's an absolute privilege to speak with you today. I've been so looking forward to it. I really have. Um, you're a self-confessed tulip-omaniac. Yes. <laughs> How and when did that passion for all things tulip come about? Well, we started our, um, uh, well, we didn't start our married life, but our first actual house, we started our married life actually on a boat. But our first house was in um, West Sussex at, at uh, uh, a village called Curd Ford. And my husband um, at that stage was working for a firm that sent him abroad on various trips. And he came back from Amsterdam with a little bag, a little net of tulip bulbs. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd never planted tulips before, but in that cottage garden in that village in Sussex, I planted this little net of tulips and up came uh, a, a wonderful tulip whose name wasn't on the bag, but was actually um, a, a, a one called Appledorn yes. and um, another one called Godoshnik, both of them huge, great sort of Darwin hybrid tulips. And um, I just looked at them and thought, God, you are amazing creatures. <laughs> And because they were so amazing, I thought, right, I think I'll plant a few more of those. And then I just sort of got so intrigued by their variety and the fact that they could do so many different tricks. Mm. Um, And I looked for a book that would tell me everything about it. And although they're two excellent books published, um, sort of, I think it was in the 20s, by uh, Professor Hall of the John Innes Research Institute, there wasn't anything that actually answered the questions I was asking. I mean, most people, if you ask them, where does the tulip come from, would say Holland. Mm. But, of course, that's not so. And the more research I did, the more intrigued I got. And also, I was deeply intrigued by um, the English florist's tulips, which I knew nothing about until the moment when just a chance mention brought me in touch with them. Mm -hmm. Um, They are the only remnant now, the Wakefield and North of England Tulip Society, the only remnant of all the tulip societies that used to exist in most of the big towns in, in England. And um, so I did, you know, I had an f- absolutely fantastic time ferreting about and, <laughs> you know, sort of really enjoying research, which I still enjoy. Research is the best bit of any book. And so I actually wrote the book for myself because by writing, you can sort out a few of the answers you were looking for. You have to actually marshal all this research material set it in order, set one fact against another. And so I wrote the entire thing and printed it out and pasted 126 of my favorite um, pictures into mm-hmm. this manuscript. 
And um, I never intended it for publication. But I had by then published one or two books, and it was my agent who asked what I'd been up to, and I told him I'd been writing this thing. Yes. And a very sort of, um, you know, uninterested voice, he said, well, I suppose I could look at it. And I said, look, there's no need, Karadik, because I wasn't intending it for publication. Um, but anyway, he did look at it, and um, oddly enough, he sort of responded to it, and... Um, and then, you know, the rest is, as they say, history. Now, we're talking about the book, The Tulip. We are. And you actually say at the very beginning of that book that it's not a gardening book. Well, I didn't. Um, it is actually always, um, <laughs> and from the beginning when it was published, it's always been shelved in the gardening section of, course. of um, any bookshop you go into. <laughs> because course. that's what I'm known for is writing gardening books. You know, now's the time to plant your onions sort of stuff. Yeah. But, and also because I'm, I was uh, for 30 years gardening correspondent of The Independent. Yes. The thing is that actually um, it was a much broader book than that. It's actually a history book that people weren't used to biographies being written about flowers. And only recently, um, thanks to uh, the, the wonderful Longitude book, um, that whole new genre of what they call narrative nonfiction that had only just been invented, mm. and it, in fact, it was Darva Sobel who wrote uh, Longitude who invented it. And so, the, this concept that actually you could have a book about a flower that wasn't actually a gardening book hadn't really taken hold. But I just wanted to say, look, you know, this is not going to tell you how far apart you should plant your tulips. <laughs> I mean, there is a little bit of, of that, perhaps at the back, and I do. And from the beginning, wanted to include a section mostly about the species. But yes. then I also did garden varieties, you know, some of my favorites. But there's so many of them. It's very difficult to actually cover that field. The interesting thing, though, and another reason why I absolutely adored the tulip was that botanists have wrestled with it from the beginning. They shut it in the box <laughs> and the tulip then bobs out and saying, hi, oh, but you never thought of this one. And when I went out into Kazakhstan and actually, you know, went over those mountains looking at um, tulips growing in the wild, I realized that it was quite by chance that a botanist happened to pluck a flower, say, of Tulipa Kaufmanniana and describe it in Curtis's Botanical Magazine as this tulip. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the wild, you know, they can be any color from red, which is what Curtis put it as, you know, all the way through to yellows and oranges and striped. And so it was that fantastic uh, unwillingness to be, you know, shut up in a box and, and given a label that really drew me to tulips. That's not saying that I'm a rebel or you know, <laughs> I'm an anarchist or anything, but I just appreciated the fact that the tulip just wasn't going to make things that easy. And indeed, since um, the tulip first came out, um, uh, it was Bloomsbury's idea very sweetly to bring out a 20th anniversary edition. And um, you know, I, I thought about it and I said, and, and wrote back to them and said, look, you know, that's a wonderful idea, but I'll have to completely revise, you know, the species section. Yes. Because since then, the botanists, and there was a, an extraordinary cabal of botanists from all over Europe who got together to try and actually <laughs> beat out another species list, quite different from the species list that <laughs> had been current when I published Tulip. It's always on the move. It's, I mean, the book is iconic. It's a Bible. I, think they, I can't think of any gardener that won't have that book on their shelves. So how do you, when you reflect back on it now, how does it stand up in comparison to the other books that you have written? Oh, well, you see, it was sort of a special thing from the beginning because I did it for myself. I never intended it for publication. 
you know, I'm a working journalist, a working writer. You know, um, I have never written a book that anybody else has suggested to me. I've only ever written books that, you know, I have put up as ideas. And I had luck, I think, in being in the field. I started at The Independent when the paper was founded in 86. And over the next 20 years or so, gardening actually had a bit of a boom. Mm. And uh, gardening books were published in a broader sort of uh, variety and more beautifully produced than they ever had been before. And so I was sort of around at the right time. And, you know, you must never underestimate luck, particularly Mm. in a freelance (laughs) profession. (laughs) You know, I I know that from, you know, walking into a newspaper office and, you know, some harassed editor has just, (laughs) you know, been told that he's got half a page to fill that he wasn't expecting. So he'll grab the first (laughs) First excuse that he can, and you know you see this happening, and often you are you are the lucky person who gets the half page. But you know luck is very important, and nobody can actually predict that. Tulip was special, and it sold a most fantastic number of copies, and it took me on the most amazing series of journeys. I went on two author tours in the Straits, which now, you know, just wouldn't be heard of. No. The authors don't go on book tours anymore <laughs> in the States. And I had two wonderful, wonderful tours uh, in America, and an opening night uh, launch of Tulip at the Metropolitan Museum in New York, which, where the book signing queue sort of went on, you know, for hours. It was phenomenal, but I don't look back on it and expect that that sort of thing ever to happen again. Uh, You know, it's just um, not how things are. And the whole publishing business has changed a great deal. I was extraordinarily lucky to be um, uh, kept on as gardening correspondent from the very first, you know, day of the paper Mm. till the time that actually I stepped down when um, they said that they weren't going to produce a print edition anymore. Right. I, I, I think they thought, you know, automatically that I would go underground with them, but, but I didn't because I don't understand the digital world. It seems to me that it's, it's very different from print. And um, I just felt, well, come on, 30 years isn't a bad stretch. So let's get out while you still enjoy it. So um, that's what I did. I was going to ask you, Anna, how your writing has actually changed over the years with the introduction of all this so-called smart technology. Uh, How do you write these days? Well, I'm not sure that it has or ever should actually change the writing. I sometimes complain that the, you know, the, the, the actual medium is, 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 is massaging the message. Yeah. But certainly, I mean, when I first started to write the column, I used to dictate my copy in on a Sunday night to a copy taker. I mean, that's how it had always been. Right. And that's how, you know, when I worked at The Observer, things were. You gave your uh, copy to a copy taker. And actually, at The Observer, when I was still working there, before I went to The Independent, we were working on typewriters, us writers, you know, banging away on typewriters. Yes. The next one day, we, we all walked in and found computers on our desks, but nobody actually thought to teach us how to use them. <laughs> and there were anguished screeches, you know, through the news floor, as well, you know, because we didn't realize we had to save it. <laughs> you know, on a typewriter, you don't have to do things like that. So, you know, I think our generation have been through a lot of technological changes, but I just sort of know now... I'm old enough to actually say, look, I I don't go there. You know, Mm. uh, I'm happy with what I do. I 
like a little rat, you know, can run along the known passages. <laughs> I now, like everybody else, you know, file a sort of direct um, sort of into the, the well, whoever I'm filing to. Mm. Um, and um, But I haven't actually engaged in any social media at all. No. Um, and I, you are, you know, one of a wonderful generation that's embraced podcasts and do all sorts of things that, you know, were unknown to my generation of writers. So I'm, I'm happy... I'm not being thinking of myself as a dinosaur. I have to know a certain amount of all this technological stuff in order to exist. Indeed, the book that's coming out in spring with Fiden is the first book that I have ever done without ever meeting any of the production team or my editor or anybody else. Oh, my it's goodness. It's all been done digitally. And are you able to give us a sneaky preview of this book? Well, it's not really, you know, even worth a sneaky preview. Actually, <laughs> I'm Mike, sure it is. Because, <laughs> because what it is, is a remade edition of a book that Dorling Kindersley did, oh, um, I think 18, 19, if not 20 years ago. It was called Plant Partners. Yes. And um, it's always been the most popular of the lectures I give. I have done an awful lot of giving talks, you know, because there's mm. an awful lot of horticultural societies and places where you can do that. And... Um, I thought it was a decent book, but of course, an awful lot has happened in that 20 years. We've got loads of different plants now, particularly things like grasses and salvias, which weren't really playing such an important part in gardeners' lives as they are now. No, they weren't. And so I began to think about this, and I began to think about ways that actually it could be rejigged, I could rewrite it, I could introduce shrubs, which weren't a part of the original mix. Mm. And I thought about this, and... Um, and actually, I'd been working with Fiden. I was um, the uh, co um, consulting editor on another book that they did called Flower. And um, I liked the people I worked with. You know, they're extraordinarily efficient and very good on detail. And so I just pitched the idea to them. And, and oddly enough, although they, they don't really sort of much go in for reprints, they said yes. Oh, wonderful. So that's what it is. It's not a brand new book, but it is a substantially remade version of Plant Partners. And it's now called The Seasonal Gardener. And it'll be coming out in spring. In the spring. We'll, we'll, we'll look forward to that. Yeah, I haven't got a date yet. Can I take you back to the, to the beginning of your career? I'm curious to know, what came first? Was it the gardening or the writing? Oh, well, you see, I didn't have a garden, really, to call my own um, until a couple of years into marriage when we sort of moved to a very sweet um, cottage in, near Petworth, a village called Curdford. And um, I really got into gardening, which wasn't surprising because both my gar um, parents were very keen gardeners. And uh, like, you know, most children are, uh, born to parents like that, I had my own patch, you know, at home. Yes. Um, I loved gardening. I was intrigued by it. It had obviously huge um, calming properties when you're at the stage <laughs> of your life bringing up small children. <laughs> And when they were bashed, you know, sort of when they were sort of safely in bed, you know, I used to love wandering out and gardening in the evening before my husband got home. So um, I was thinking about having to earn some money because we needed it. And I was thinking that writing might be the way to do it. Um, so in a curious way, writing chose gardening as a subject that actually I could write about because I was constantly doing it, I was learning stuff, I had, uh, uh, you know, I was amassing quite a lot of, of you know, um, well, not, not exactly opinions, because of course your opinions on everything change all the time, <laughs> but 
Um, I, I had always written. I'd been writing at the Observer, where I was writing on, you know, heritage matters and on, you know, um, national trust and all sorts of things like that. Mm. And then gardening sort of became really a more obvious subject because I was no longer in a newspaper office in the way that I used to be at the Observer. Um, so I would say they came almost hand in hand. And actually, it was a column um, for uh, the, I think it was an early column for the Independent, probably, that some caught somebody's eye, and um, a, a publisher's eye, and it was Chateau. And they got in touch and said, how about a book? And that's how it started. And do you remember your first published piece of work? No. <laughs> I've never been a great one for sort of hanging on to stuff that I've done. I mean, you know, I haven't even got copies of the television programs I made. And I know that might seem odd, but, you know, in a freelance life, it's always the next deadline. You're always thinking ahead. And although it's been, a, you know, some years now since I've actually pitched things, um, you know, there comes a point at which somehow you've got as much as you can handle by all the stuff that, you know, requests that are being made that you stop pitching. And yeah. now um, I don't pitch because actually uh, well, somehow the hours seem to go. Um, you know, there's always something to do. I mean, you know, I've, I've usually, um, I've always had a book on the go, actually, always. And they yeah. take me a very long time. And then I, I veered off and I, I did, you know, a book landscaping, which was my last one. And, you know, I can spend at least, yeah, I don't know, five, six, seven years on a book um, because I so love the research. Yes, I read that somewhere. I read that, am I right in saying the tulip took about six years for you to yeah, research? Yeah, at least that. Because, you see, that was only done in part time because I was doing that when I was already engaged on a weekly column for The Independent and on all sorts of other freelance work. I was uh, one of the founding uh, associate editors of Gardens Illustrated. You know, I, I was uh, sort of involved in an awful lot of startups. And mm. I did radio, which I adore. I did some television series. Those were more difficult because there again, I would only do um, ideas that I had myself. Yes. And I presented them. But then, of course, because this is television, they want you to do sort of things that you aren't, you aren't comfortable with. And then, you know, because I only wanted to do things that I was interested in, it got not so easy to get them past <laughs> the commissioning editors. So um, I wasn't sorry because, you know, I'd spent time at the BBC as a, as a, as a television director and, and I knew that medium quite well. OK. Oh, I didn't realise um, that. It's much, e it's much easier <laughs> to be on that side than it is actually doing the pitching and the presenting, you know, because you can too easily be nudged into, you know, somehow an appearance that you don't particularly feel as you. Yes, yeah. I, I must admit, sort of, I had read that it took about six years to research the tulip. And I'm not surprised because even before you get into the book, the, one of the first things you tell us is that there are 3,000 million tulips imported into America each year for their mm. market. And from then on, the facts come thick and fast. It's an incredible amount of information in there. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The only sad, the, well, it's not sad, it's just the way that it was. When I was actually engaged in um, working on Tulip, in my own time, as I say, you mm. know, I wasn't driven by the sort of schedule that I might have had if it had been, a, you know, a commissioned book. Um, I, I couldn't work out how to get into Kazakhstan. My husband and I only travel independently, you know, and um, yes. it was just so complicated, partly because of the communist regime, partly because of this and that, and, you know, what papers you needed. 
And um, I didn't actually get into Kazakhstan, which was a riveting, riveting um, experience until much later. I did write about it, oddly enough, when um, in one of my later books called The Naming of Names, which I have to say is, in my opinion, the most, uh, is, is the book that I'm proudest to have written. It didn't sell anything like the tulip, but gosh, you know, in terms of the story that it was telling, and again, the research that nobody had actually ever done before, and nobody had ever stitched that particular tale together, which was the same with Tulip. Um, I, I, uh, that was a, a book that, you know, I was really glad to have been able to have the stamina to write. But oddly enough, in the, in, in the introduction to that book, The Naming of Names, mm. um, I did write about that um, trip to Kazakhstan because it was completely extraordinary. Mm. Picking up on the trip to Kazakhstan, were you there with Fergus Garrett? No, I was with Fergus and with Christopher in Turkey. In Turkey? Yeah, that was a trip I did make during Tulip because I knew that I had to see Tulips in the Wild. That was all part of what I felt I had to do. Mm. You know, you have to bear in mind all the time that this was not a commissioned book. This was not a book with any idea of publication. It's just that I had to, you know, flesh out the story as fully as I felt that I was able. And my husband and I had actually seen um, Tulips in in Europe, Mm. Um, I tell one of those stories in The Tulip, you know, about seeing it on, on the island of, oh, I've forgotten now, Crete. <laughs> um, but uh, then I began to plan a journey into eastern Turkey, where there are an amazing number of um, tulip species. Mm-hmm. But it was a tricky time. Yes. My husband was desperately busy and didn't think that he could come. So I actually wrote to Fergus, who was a dear friend, and said, you know, do you fancy coming to Turkey? Of course, I'll cover all your expenses, but I can't go into eastern Turkey as a woman alone. No, of course no. I can't. And he completely understood that. And then Christopher heard of it, what we were planning. He said, you're jolly well not going without me. And um, and actually, it wasn't, you know, the easiest time to be traveling in eastern Turkey because the PKK, the Kurdish guerrillas, were pretty active at that time. Goodness and, me. Um, we were down on the Iranian border. And it's a journey that you just couldn't make now, of course. But, no. um, you know, we got, had very, very good advice, uh, although I was slightly alarmed when friends of Christopher's were phoned me and said, you're not taking Christopher into that hell, are you? <laughs> well, actually, with good advice, and, um, you know, which we followed absolutely to the letter, because it was very important mm. to be fully prepared and take every precaution that we were told to take. Um, for instance, you know, you might think that tacking yourself behind an army convoy would be the safest way to travel, but in fact, it's the least safe because they are the prime targets of the PKK guerrillas. Of course. Yeah, there was a yeah. pass to the west of Lake Van, and there was an army convoy going through there, we were told, and we were going in that direction, and somebody said, why don't you uh, join them? Mm. And we said, well, that's sweet of you, but no thanks. And uh, the whole of the convoy was blown up, including the civilian cars. Goodness so, me. You know, we were very careful. Mm. I don't want anybody to feel that we just went there, you know, on a wing and a prayer. Yeah. Absolutely not. But it was wonderful to have them because Fergus, of course, is half Turkish. Oh, I didn't realise that. Yeah, half Turkish. Ah. And also Christopher, with his white hair, immediately made friends amongst the Turks because they venerate old age. And he's incredibly and beautifully curious. I speak about him in the present because, to me, he still is present. He was a dear, dear, dear and important friend to me. And um, every day, you know, I said, oh, I must tell Christopher about that Uh, and then realise he's not here. But I'm still in touch, of course, with Dixter and Fergus. And actually, Fergus asked whether I would be patron of the great Dixter Charitable Trust. And although, to my shame, um, (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I, I don't do as much as I'm sure a patron should do. Unfortunately, we are at opposite ends of the country, which doesn't make it easy to pop into Dixter all that often. But um, I had a wonderful time earlier this year when I gave the Christopher Lloyd Memorial Lecture in the year in which it had been 100 years since Christopher was born. Uh, and that was a very moving and touching occasion. I, yes, I can imagine. Because um, we were still in the COVID time and they arranged it beautifully, you know, with everybody socially distanced. But I hadn't given a talk for, oh, well, probably about, I don't know, certainly for over a year. I was nervous. I was nervous because I wanted it to be good mm. for Fergus. I wanted it to be good because it was Dixter. Yeah. Um, it all sort of just worked, and, and, and everybody, this is the first outing for many people after having been locked up, as we all have been. Yes. And there was all that. There was that sort of tentative nature of people saying, gosh, can we really come to this garden? Can we really <laughs> do this again? And it was a wonderful evening, and after I'd given the talk in the Great Hall with little groups of people, as they'd booked, you know, all sitting in their own little groups, but distanced from every other little group. Mm. So, in fact, it was beautifully done. And we all wandered down through the garden to an absolutely gorgeous Turkish supper down uh, sort of um, at the bottom end of the garden. Oh, how lovely. Beautifully served in the open air. And it was just such a magic evening. You you once uh, mentioned that late Christopher Lloyd was a dear friend of yours. And you mentioned in an interview that he was a mentor to you. And I wondered if you could tell us how that came about and how we mentored you it's very difficult to explain it because um you know that position isn't really sort of understood i think in many ways um, anymore but i first met christopher when i went down um to try and persuade him to write a gardening column in the observer for whom i was working at the time and um i knew him not to be particularly you know sort of um easy always mm. Um, but I knew uh, that he would be absolutely right for The Observer because he writes so brilliantly and he would have an informed and interested audience in The Observer readers. Yes. So I was very keen for it to work. And I quickly learned, actually, that what Christopher loved was an argument. <laughs> and instead of actually turning tail and running... <laughs> In which case, he would run after you, snapping at your heels, as it were, in a metaphorical way. You had to stand up and argue your point. You had to be very sure that you actually could argue your point before you engaged in the argument. But in a curious way, I think, you know, he sort of quite enjoyed that, the fact that, you know, I stood my ground. And, um, and he then sent a card asking me to come down and stay. And at that point, I did manage to persuade him to take on the column, which was, which was wonderful. But it was the start of a very long and very meaningful friendship. Mm. And what I think I mean by mentoring is that from the beginning, Christopher gave really good advice. I remember writing to him when I was offered the gardening cor um, correspondence column mm. uh, at the Independent. And this followed a very, very hilarious lunch at the <laughs> Indy, which I really enjoyed. But I, I hadn't remembered that gardening was once mentioned. So when this letter <laughs> arrived, this was the day of letters, not emails, I thought, some mistake, surely. Um, but um, it wasn't a mistake. And so I wrote to Christopher saying, what do you think? Should I do it or, you know, should I not? And he gave me really good advice. He said, well, if you do, take it seriously. This is a serious subject. Use your eyes. Make up your own opinions, but only when you have actually used your eyes and thought about it. Mm. Keep, I mean, even practical things like keeping a card index of what you're writing about so you know <laughs> if you're repeating yourself. Mostly, it was his uncompromising attitude to the knowledge. I mean... He would never, if you were wandering down the long border at Dixter, uh, if you hadn't got your notebook with you, 
he would never give you the name of the plant. I would ask because there was a great deal at the beginning that was unfamiliar to me. Oh, really? He said, I'm not going to tell you. You won't remember it. <laughs> he said, I'll tell you when you've got a notebook with you. <laughs> and from that day on, I never went anywhere without a notebook because he was right. Yes. You don't yeah. remember. And so, you know, just important things like that. And he was a mentor. To, I stayed there, you know, often. And he came to stay here with us in Dorset. Mm. And, you know, he was a wonderful companion. He was very funny. And and, and it wasn't just gardening. I mean, that's what made him such a great um, companion. Was And also informed his gardening that he knew such a lot about music, for instance. Mm. He was a tremendously stalwart um, uh, sort of supporter of the Glindmorn Opera, and indeed yes. uh, he was called in to you know design some of the borders there. He, for his 70th and 80th birthdays, he held these wonderful birthday parties in the Great Hall, and and had uh, arranged concerts. And he would stand up and introduce pieces. He absolutely loved you know the German leader, and he would get up and introduce them. Uh, as though he was a Radio 3 announcer. It was fantastic. <laughs> and, of course, he was lucky in that his friendship circle involved people like Pip Morrison, who's now a garden designer, mm. and Graham Goff, you know, who's now become um, important and famous as the owner of the nursery in, in Sussex, quite near to Dixter. Um, and um, uh, so, uh, you know, and when you, were, when you were out with him, you realized that actually he was also a tremendous naturalist. If you were out walking, yeah. you know, he, he knew how the whole thing knitted together. It wasn't just plants. He knew about the insects, about pollination, about birds, uh, about the nature of the soil. You know, he was a wonderfully broad, educated man uh, and a wonderful, became a wonderful cook. Because when their cook, this is when he was living with his mother still at Dixter, she was still alive. When, yeah. cook, when the cook died, because those were the days, you know, when houses always had cooks. Of course. Um, he, he started cooking himself. And uh, he became an extremely good cook and extremely interested in food. I was worried more about the food when he came to stay with us than <laughs> about the garden. <laughs> he really liked a good meal and, you know, it was up to, up to, run to, to try and, and put it in front of him. You had to up your game, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we were lucky in actually living quite near to where they grow oysters. He adored oysters, which I know nothing about. Okay. But fortunately, um, I, I'm quite often invited other friends of um, Christopher's who didn't live too far away to come and join us for dinner. Mm. And one of them had a sort of uh, a direct line into the oyster grower. Oh. And so he used to bring the oysters <laughs> and open them. <laughs> and did, did Christopher approve of those oysters? Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah, and he also approved, you know, of the fact that it required just a little organisation to get them, to get them fresh. Yeah. <laughs> now, fond memories of such a lovely guy who is so sorely missed by so many people. You live a little further along the coast of me in West Dorset. Tell, yeah. tell me about your garden in West Dorset. Oh, well... <laughs> Um, we were for nearly 40 years at this amazing house, which is slightly further east of, from here, um, in a village called the Bride Valley, mm -hmm. uh, which is a little bit um, sort of east of Bridport, between Bridport and Dorchester. And it was there, actually, that I suppose, you know, that house, uh, it was a, a rather wonderful Queen Anne rectory, but completely derelict when we took it on without a proper roof or anything. And it took us 18 months to find our boundaries there. It was completely overgrown. So that, in a way, seared us in a way that uh, few gardens, you know, have a chance to sear you and to teach you. 
Moving here was because I knew we couldn't afford to keep a place like the rectory on its um, feet mm. as we got very much older. And, you know, there were outbuildings, there was a dovecot, stables, barn, you know, a most incredible place. And we were very lucky to take it on as a place where nobody wanted rectories. Um, and particularly not derelict ones with no roof. Um, and West Dorset hadn't actually, as you must have observed, hadn't hit, you know, the headlines in the way that it has now. No, no. You know, when the newspapers uh, started calling Bridport the new Notting Hill, mm. we all groaned and thought, oh, yes. no. Because it is special. Um, and so for all sorts of reasons, we knew that we had to leave the rectory. And so we pushed to this place where we loved to walk. We we're great walkers, my husband and I. Mm -hmm. And this was a tiny little triangle with not many houses in it. So <laughs> the chance of a house coming up was reasonably thin. But um, one eventually did. And it's in a, 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 a no-through valley. And we live at the end of a no-through track. And the real point about it is the situation. It's perched on the side of a very steep valley and it faces south. And, oh, lovely. Um, we have ancient you know, sort of pasture fields mm. that belong to it. I mean, it's not it's called Sunnyside Farm, but it's not got the sort of land that you could farm on really uh, anymore. No. It's, but it has got 20 acres of unimproved pasture, which is very interesting to me. The, ha the garden is extremely steep, um, and I've made something which is completely different from the sort of garden I had for nearly 40 years at the rectory. It is guided very much more by trees and shrubs. Mm -hmm. um, it is completely different soil. Um, it's what around here is called green sand. And it's a, a beautiful, beautiful sand that's a, a soil that's on the acid side of neutral. Okay. Which means that I can grow magnolias yes. and um, rhododendrons. Camellias. Rhododendrons, species magnolias. Mm. And a whole host of things. I mean, um, you know, it is... A liberation to be able to have, with only moving sort of six miles or so, a completely different set of circumstances. And I also, at the um, at the rectory, had been ruled very much, sort of slightly before it sort of hit the headlines, really. But um, from the beginning, um, uh, we, we took on, uh, as part of the garden at the rectory, a big walled um, kitchen garden, which was oh, completely, you know, sort of overgrown. Mm. But I did have it in my sights then from the very beginning to create a garden much as I hoped it might have looked in, you know, the 17th, 18th century. And the paths we unearthed were the original paths, as we could tell from their surfacing. And so nearly all my time there was spent in the kitchen garden where I grew every fruit and vegetable that could be grown outside. Oh, how wonderful. In, south, in the south of England. Mm. So I was sort of slightly ahead of the game there because people weren't you know sort of slightly so much into growing fruit and veg then but i became very very interested in trained fruit espaliers and fans and yes. grew a great deal of them so this garden i decided no i wasn't going to do a lot of fruit and veg you know the children's moved we didn't have all the endless parties of kids and friends you know mm -hmm. staying yeah. as we used to so now I yeah I do the usual things you know I do tomatoes I do cucumbers I do fresh peas you know I do sort of things that are definitely worth growing salad crops French beans. How much time do you get to spend in your much garden? Much more than I ever have had before, which is another reason for not pitching um, <laughs> for work anymore. <laughs> um, quite honestly, uh, the garden I made with a huge rush of enthusiasm and excitement because I was so. Um, intrigued by the possibilities it's probably about an acre and a half this garden with you know a little extra half acre of paddock uh, which we've turned into an orchard of west country fruit varieties 
um, I, I, it's, it's a garden that now, at this stage, nearly 20 years on, is actually uh, too much. I have four hours help a week, which I've had from the beginning. Um, but right. in order to keep up, I now have to, um, and because I can't actually garden, you know, the eight hours a day nonstop that I used to be able to do. <laughs> um, you do know my age, do you? I don't know, and I didn't well, you're, want to you're ask. Well, you're most willing. You're most welcome to ask. I'm 81 years old. I won't tell anybody. I've been actually, you know, um, fully engaged um, work in a working life, you know, ever since I started. And um, I've only had one year in paid occupation, which is my very first job as a copywriter in an advertising agency when advertising was hot in the 60s. Apart from that, you know, I've sort of um, lived as we all do when we were freelance hand-to-mouth. Um, I was lucky in having the column. You can't call that hand to mouth. But, um, you know, there's no doubt, and I hesitate to say it because I never believed it, but uh, you do slow down in your 80s. There's no doubt about it. And, um, and how do you find that? Do you find that process frustrating? Do you just do as much as you possibly can? There's no point in being frustrated. You are what you are. And gardening is, uh, uh, you know, the great thing about it is to actually do what you can do to keep using your eyes and to take pleasure in what you can do. But I'm just saying that it takes me longer to do things, especially as mm, it's such mm. a steep garden. And I remember the first time we ever brought our kids to see this new place that we were going to buy. The three daughters, we have three daughters now and 12 grandchildren, they stood in the yard mm. and um, watched me scramble up the steep bank, hanging on to a sort of <laughs> overhanging elder. And the eldest daughter shouted out from the yard, perfect for your old age, Mama. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, you know, 20 years back, I wasn't even thinking of that, but it has been such enormous fun to make. And the magnolias are mm. stupendous. I'd never grown one before because I never had the right soil. I've always gardened on clay, both in Sussex where we started and at the rectory. We've only had those two yes. houses until we came here. But this is so liberating. And actually, also, which is why I wrote the book Landscaping, I have become more and more and more entranced with what happens over the valley, watching the birds, watching the fights between the rooks and the buzzards, watching the shadows stretch over yes. the fields, watching the foxes, you know, watching the deer. And now, increasingly, I have to say, watching the hedgehogs in the garden. <laughs> you know, oh, well, that's yeah, good they news. haven't been around for some time. And I'm not going to get into that debate about why they're back. But um, no. I'm just delighted to see them. And they amble around. And I opened the front door the other day, early in the morning. And, you know, there was one sitting or standing rather, just at the top of the steps. And we both looked at each other, and he didn't bundle into a ball. Oh. He didn't move. I didn't move. And, <laughs> you know, that's how it is here. We've got an awful lot of stuff in the garden. We've got slow worms. You know, we've got um, dormice. We've got now hedgehogs. <laughs> we've got, you that's know, a proper there's, uh, garden. an awful lot of birds. And, you know, I know that, mm. you know, there's all this cry about sort of how hard-pushed um, wildlife is. And I'm sure it is, but... If you just stay mm. out of its way and, you know, don't feel the need to engage or to try and pick them up and do stuff with them, you know, um, if you just yeah. leave them alone and let them find their own sort of um, balance between themselves, then it seems to me, you know, that's the best thing we can do. I think that's what a good garden is. Plenty yeah. of wildlife. The wildlife was there before we were. They'll be there after Absolutely. we've gone. So. And you see, there's the plus side. I mean, there's a lot more sort of stuff lying around now than there used to be. You know, I'm slower clearing mm. up the borders. You know, we have a lot of sort of wood, um, you know, sort of standing around, you know, waiting to be dealt with in one way or another. <laughs> I have two enormous compost heaps, which um, actually the grass snake adores. The grass snake always comes up. I suppose it likes the stream best because 
having read them up, I gather that frogs are, you know, what they mostly live on. But the streams down in the valley mm. below, I mean, it is within our sort of land. But um, to get to the compost heaps, it has to travel, you know, quite a long way uphill. But it always lays its eggs in the compost heaps. And, you know, the year after, when I'm digging the usable compost, I run them side by <laughs> side. One's being made. The other one has already been made yeah. and is being dug out. And when I'm digging out in this lovely compost, I always find the clutch of eggs. You know, they've sort of got these very, very leathery, leathery skins. Amazing. And I read all about it, you know, because I was so intrigued uh, when I first uh, saw the grass snake basking on top of the mm. compost heaps. I adore snakes. And, I, you know, I, I've always thought it a tremendous, tremendous um, gift to actually have been given the opportunity to have one, you know, coming into the garden. Yes. And um, I read that the babies, uh, they're born as little baby snakes inside these sack-like eggs. Mm -hmm. um, they have a little tooth, uh, um, a little spike at the front, and they use that to rip their way out of the egg, and then it drops off. It's most, most beautifully designed and organised. So I've learned a lot. You, you were speaking then about your family. Are there any aspiring gardeners or garden writers in the yeah, family Yeah, there are both. Up? And the funny thing is, and of course, you bend over backwards, <laughs> you know, not to suppose that that is going to happen. Three daughters is a good start. Um, yes. And um, numbers uh, two and three are both brilliant gardeners. And I have to say, my chief pleasure is wandering around their gardens, not wandering around mine. Um, and they are both excellent gardeners, thoughtful, um, funny, accepting of disaster, but always looking forward. And I benefit, you know, because we email a, a lot. I never took to Zoom. Mm. You know, we can't really do it here. And the phone is such no. a lively way of, you know, sort of keeping up in touch with them. So we phone a lot. And uh, I was saying to daughter number two, oh, God, you know, my seed sowing this year has been a disaster. None of the Tithonias have come through. And she said, oh, she said, I was just potting on my Tithonias. She said, I've got far more than I want. I'll keep some for you. And this also happened again with daughter number three, who's an equally brilliant gardener, when I was sort of moaning about something else that I'd uh, not got enough of. And she said, oh, she said, I've got masses of spare nasturtium. I'll let you have some. <laughs> so you see, I benefit a great deal. Yeah, and I love being in their gardens. I love listening to them talk about yeah. their gardens. And daughter number three has actually written some wonderful things about gardening. And um, she was lucky to have been picked up um, by Country Life. And so she does stuff for them. Oh, wonderful. So you keep an, a very keen eye and a close eye on her. <laughs> I'm always very anxious to read her. But she's, uh, she's a yeah. brilliant writer. She really is. And, uh, you know, as a proud mother, of course, all proud mothers would say things like that. But uh, I reckon, you know, that, I, that um, I read quite a lot of pieces about gardening, I, you know, one way and another. And, and she's just got it, you know, and she's lively. Uh, she's observant. Um, she, mm -hmm. she's, she, and she knows the critical things, too, about writing to length and delivering on time. I said to her when she said she was going to try and pitch a few ideas, I said, look, there's only two things you need to do. You deliver at the length you've been asked for and deliver it on time. And then you're more than halfway to, you're more than halfway to success. In 2001, you were awarded the Gold Feature Award Medal from the yes. RHS. And then in 2020, the Garden Media Guild Lifetime Achievement Award what do those awards mean to you now? They make me very proud. They also make me feel, as I'm sure other people who have awards feel, that God, I don't know what I did to deserve that. Um, <laughs> I really, really, really don't, honestly. You know, because it's a job, 
And although I am, yeah. I'm more critical of my own writing than I ever think anybody else could possibly be. And that's how it should be. You know, if you're a mm. freelance earning your living by, you know, sentences that you string together, then you have to be very critical of your work. Um, and you have to you know, run it backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, first of all, to make sure that it's factually correct. Yes. And that's not difficult to do. More difficult is to actually achieve what you might call a sort of voice, something that makes people, when they pick it up, know that it's your piece and not anybody else's. Mm. That's actually mm. difficult and um, takes some time. And um, I think that uh, it, it, it's just something that you recognize. I hear my pieces in my head when I'm writing them. That's my voice. Yeah. And if uh, there's, I mean, it was never much time at the Indy to edit anything. It was always running on a season. <laughs> so in fact, my pieces were ne never sort of got very much editing, which um, I was very lucky in that, I suppose. But if, if there is an edit... Um, I can always pick it up, you know, because it just doesn't sound in my head exactly what I would put. And if I go back to my original piece, I, uh, you know, 90% of the time I'm right. Uh, there has been a bit of a, you know, a, a rejig there, mm. uh, which is not to say that all writers don't need editors. My God, they do. They can save you from some terrible blunders. You know, we all have black spots. We all have days when somehow, you know, we'll think one plant is another plant. And, you know, mm. these, uh, these are human failings. And, you know, I'm a subject yeah. with everybody else. <laughs> and so, oh, God, yes, I, you know, I, I give my, uh, sort of, uh, I, I thank uh, the fact that the nature of our business does mean that it generally runs through somebody else's eyes before it goes out. <laughs> <laughs> So do you have somebody? Do you ever run your writing past no, your Lord, husband? No, Lord, <laughs> no. <laughs> that was established very early on in, my, in our marriage. We've been married, I don't know, 52, 53 years. I mean, a long time anyway. A very long time. More than 50 years, should we say. We've lost, both of us lost count. It doesn't seem to matter. Uh -huh. But, you know, it's just not what he's interested in. He wouldn't be able to make any comments. No. He never reads anything I write. He's never read a book of mine. He never reads in a <laughs> column of mine. I don't, uh, you know, I've given up expecting him to. I don't think I ever did, even at the beginning. No. Why should he? <laughs> I mean, the person I chat to most is another gardening correspondent, as it happens, but she also happens to be a really, really good friend. Or, although we came together because in the days when, you know, gardening correspondent used to go out on many more jinks than they do now. Yeah. I don't mean jinx just because, you know, it was being paid for, but, you know, you used to go to, on visits and do this or that. Yeah, yeah. You know, sort of garden show or, you know, there used to be a lot more gatherings. Um, and um, I got to know Ursula Buchan in Scotland when we were both on some trip um, to when they were trying to launch a Scottish gardening show. And um, I, she, she trained at Kew. She's a proper, you know, sort of trained um, guard, gardener in a way that I'm not. I've never had a professional gardening training. Okay. But Ursula is very funny. She writes like a dream. And she's the one, because we share a sense of humor and understand the problems that each other has. Um, mm. She um, has written, you know, columns for the Telegraph and uh, for the Spectator. She's written books. Um, and, you know, I, I, we see, we know, we don't see each other as often as we used to. Mm. But... Um, you know, um, she's the person to whom I talk most. And perhaps, you know, I might air a problem there about something that yeah. I'm stuck on. But it wouldn't be in a sort of proper, um, proper, you know, sort of sense. It would just sort of come out in conversation. Mm. Anna, 
It's been a sheer delight chatting to you today. It really has. I could I could chat to you all day long. I have so much more I could ask. <laughs> I'll have to invite you back for another podcast one day. Um, thank you for your time and go out and enjoy the beautiful West Dorset sunshine. Oh, yes. Well, Mike, thank you for your questions because, you know, uh, my problem will be that I talk too much because it's the nature of a solitary ni- uh, life that when somebody <laughs> <laughs> asks you questions, you know, and, and usually it's the other way around, as you know, you're the one asking questions. So uh, it's been a great, great pleasure to talk to you and thank you for doing such excellent research. It makes, you know, my job very, very easy. It's my pleasure. It's been an absolute delight, Anna. Thank you so Good. much indeed. Well, my thanks to Anna for a most fascinating insight into her life and career. And sure enough, we did talk longer after the interview ended. As always, I'll be back next week with some more gardening chit-chat. So until then, bye-bye for now. Bye-bye.